As we come to the book of Colossians in our Through the Bible series, I'm tempted to ask how many have read the book of Colossians today before this meeting? Would you raise your hand if you have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Well, that's not too good a showing. How many have read it this week? Any more? One. Okay, two. Fine. Thank you. I just did that because I want to remind you that the purpose of these evening studies together is to, uh, is to, uh, go over together that which you've already studied on. And you'll get much more out of these, uh, bird's eye views of the bo- books of the Bible if you have read them yourself first. And since we're working in the in the area of the New Testament, where many short books occur, there's really no reason why you can't read these books through. It'd only take you about 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes to read through the book of Colossians. So perhaps you may want to do that yet even tonight, before you go to bed. Now, the church at Colossae was uh, not begun by the Apostle Paul. Most of the letters to which uh, which he wrote to the churches were written to churches that he himself had started. But he did not begin the church at Rome, nor did he begin the church at Colossae. And it's uncertain just who started this church, though it's very likely that it was a man whom we've met before in certain of Paul's letters, Epaphroditus. Or, since that was too long a name even for the Greeks to say, they shortened it to Epaphras. And Epaphras is mentioned in this letter as being uh, one who was from Colossae and was very likely the man who founded the church at Colossae. Where he heard the gospel, we do not know. But he had evidently taken the gospel to his own hometown and had begun to proclaim Christ. And out of that proclamation had come the church that was there. And uh, Epaphroditus had gone to Rome to see the Apostle Paul, who was then a prisoner, and... uh, uh, he carried with him reports of the church at Colossae. Also, another man had come from this area to Rome, where Paul was uh, undergoing his first imprisonment, and he too brought reports of the church at Colossae. And so it's to these new Christians, who had never met the apostle face to face, that this letter was written from Rome. It was written about the same time as the letter to the Philippians, which we looked at last week, And you'll notice that it's very similar in its structure and its content to the letter to Ephesus or the letter to the Ephesians and was probably written about the same time uh, during Paul's first imprisonment. These are what are called the prison epistles of the Apostle Paul uh, written uh, during that first imprisonment. Uh, the, the, the difference largely between Ephesians and Colossians is that the Colossians had a problem. And it's this problem that uh, the apostle is primarily centering on. They were being threatened with losing the understanding of the power by which the Christian life is lived. Therefore, this letter is the great, uh, proclamation and explanation of the power of a Christian's life. Christ as the resource of the individual. And the theme of this letter, therefore, is power. Now, that ought to make it 
uh, of fascinating interest to we Americans who are so enamored of power. This is the great letter that answers the question, what is the power by which the Christian life is to be lived, and how is it available? And the theme, therefore, of this letter might well be expressed in the 11th verse of the first chapter, which is part of the Apostle's introductory prayer for these Colossian Christians. He, he says to them, may you be strengthened with all power. That's why he wrote the letter. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And that's the subject of the letter to the Colossians. Now, since Paul had never been there, you'd understand that he began this letter with certain references to himself as an apostle and certain greetings to these people in Colossae and thanksgiving for the faith that he's heard is prevalent among them and for their love and for their joy and for other evidences that he's been given by the reports brought to him that these are genuinely Christian people who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been radically transformed. Have you noticed that's always the mark that the apostles looked for? Whenever they heard of other Christians, they expected to hear that something had happened to them, that they were different kind of people, that they weren't going on like many Christians seemingly attempt to do today, utterly unchanged in their attitudes, their outlooks, or anything about them. But to the early new first century Christians, becoming a Christian was a, a radical transformation resulting from a revolutionary change of government. And this was evident in these Colossian Christians. Now the apostle writes to them and thanks them for this, for what he's heard about them, comments on their faith, and then he prays for them. And uh, one, this prayer is one of the most refreshing, one of the most delightful prayers in all the New Testament. Verse 9, And from the day we heard of it, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and uh, that you may lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then that theme prayer, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And beginning with that note, he, he sets forth for them then the source of all power in the Christian life, which, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. And beginning with verse 15 of chapter 1, you have one of the most glorious uh, proclamations of the deity and the person of Jesus Christ that you have in all of the New Testament. One of the strongest words concerning his essential deity is found in this passage. It begins in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Now an image is an exact expression. And uh, he's declaring here that in the man, Jesus, we have the exact expression of all that God is. Furthermore, he's the firstborn of all creation. Perhaps some of you have had the experience of 
answering your doorbell someday and finding a man or a woman standing there with a little green book under his arm or her arm announcing him or herself as a Jehovah's Witness and asking to come in to tell you the truth about life and the Bible and so on. And if you've let them in, sooner or later, they've turned to this passage to show you that Jesus Christ was not God that he was essentially a creature, the highest of the creatures of the creation. And they use this term, the firstborn of the creation, to uh, bolster their argument. They argue that this means that Jesus was the first one ever created. And, of course, there is a sense in which this word firstborn does have that meaning as the first one that appeared. We refer to our children. The oldest one is the firstborn because he or she appeared first on the scene. But, uh, you see, that's one of the slick devices by which the cults propagate their errors. And it's very subtle because it apparently seems to be logical and scriptural. But what they're doing is using a modern meaning of the term, which is quite different from what the New Testament uses this term to be. And if you let the New Testament interpret what the word firstborn mean, it doesn't mean the one born first at all. It means the heir, the chief, the principal one, the owner. And this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, means that the Lord Jesus stands in relationship to creation just as the heir of a, of a, of a father stands in relationship to the father's property. He's not part of it. He isn't part of the father's ownership. He's the owner of it. He's the heir of it. You remember, you have this used in various ways in the Old Testament. And uh, recall in two specific instances, we have a clear case of the one who was born second was really the firstborn of the family. Uh, in the case, for instance, of... Uh, of uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was born first, but Isaac was the firstborn. Again, in the case of, of Esau and Jacob, Esau was born first, but Jacob was the firstborn. So you see, this does not mean the first one of a line of creation, but that he is the heir of all creation, the owner of it. And this fits, of course, with, with what the apostle goes on to say. In him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And if you look carefully at the Jehovah's Witnesses' little uh, green translation of the scriptures, you'll notice that in order to... Uh, substantiate their lie about Jesus Christ, they have inserted the word other in these phrases. All other things were created by him. All, uh, and uh, in him all other things were created. But there's absolutely no warrant whatsoever in the Greek text for the insertion of the word others. This is a clear instance of the kind of deceitfulness to which these people will stoop in order to propagate the lies that they manifest. Now, uh, here is Paul's great declaration. Here is the Lord Jesus, the creator, 
is what he's declaring him to be. The one who flung all the worlds into being, who, who was there present with God and was God, when the great words went out, let there be light. Let there be, uh, uh, let the earth bring forth. And uh, all the other great declarations of creation that we have in Genesis 1. It was the Lord who did this. And furthermore, as Paul goes on to say, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, it's a, one of the puzzles of science, why things hold together. We now know that everything that you can touch today is made up of tiny atoms, which are, are in turn consist of electrons buzzing around a, a nucleus. And as we all know, anything that rotates or revolves has what we call, um, uh, what's the name of it, the kind of force it throws outward? <laughs> Centrifugal. Thank you for the word. It just escaped me for the moment. Centrifugal force. Therefore, it ought to be blowing up. Every atom, because of the centrifugal force, ought to be driving away from the nucleus. Well, what holds it together? Science cannot answer. They know it's an unnamed force. And that always interests me, because I continually find this description in science, and it reminds me of Paul's experience in Athens, when he found them worshiping an unknown God. The unknown God. That's what science is struggling with today. And the name of him is Jesus of Nazareth. In him, by him, all things are held together. So all power in the natural world comes from him. But further, the apostle says that he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Twice he uses this term, the firstborn. He's the firstborn of the old creation. He's the firstborn of the new creation, the resurrection. Firstborn from the dead. Now again, that doesn't mean that he's the one who was first raised from the dead, because there were others who preceded him in the scriptural record. But he was the one who is the heir, the Lord of all the new creation, the head of the new creation, as the apostle tells us. And we are part of that new body, that new race of men which God is forming in the centuries, through the centuries. And of that, Jesus Christ is the head. And from him, then, all power flows. Resurrection power. It's my increasing conviction that the problem with most Christians today is that they don't understand what the Bible teaches about resurrection power. If we had any idea what this power is like and how it operates and uh, the areas and situations in which it's intended to operate, we'd never again live like we live now. We'd be entirely different. I don't mean that we'd be dazzling people and making great displays of power by moving mountains and all these other things. That, isn't, that doesn't take resurrection power to do that. Resurrection power is quiet. It's the kind of power that was evident in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't the, the uh, fact that he came from the tomb 
that dazzled the eyes of the uh, of the soldiers who were there, the Roman soldiers, nor uh, produced the earthquake. He came from the tomb absolutely without a sound. The stone was rolled away not to let him out, but to let people in, that they might see that the tomb was empty. And there was no sound, no demonstration. There was the quiet, resistless power of a risen life, which no mechanical or natural power can possibly resist. And this is what God has released to us. A quiet power that changes hearts and lives and attitudes and makes everything different from within. That's resurrection power. And that flows to us from the head of the new creation, the risen Christ, the source of all power. Now Paul goes on to show these Colossians who the intended recipients of this power are. Look at verse 21. You, you, who once were estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That includes us all, doesn't it? We belong in this category. And we're the ones through whom this power is now to operate. It's you whom he has reconciled to his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. And the only, uh, the only, uh, necessity for that is, as he says, that you go on and continue steadfast in the gospel. And then in, in verse 24, through to the end of this first chapter, he gives us the demonstration in his own life of this power. He says, God called him, and God set him to the ministry to proclaim this mystery, and he tells us again what it is. He says that I might make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. You won't find it explained in the Old Testament. It was experienced there, but it was never explained there. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. Uh, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles is are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is it? Christ in you. That's it. The hope of glory. Christ living in you. This is the supreme declaration of the Christian church. And you've never preached the gospel until you tell men that not only will their sins be forgiven when they come to Christ, but he himself will live within them to do through them everything that they're expected to do. He died for us that he might live in us. And this is the full glory of the Christian gospel. Now, notice how Paul experienced this. He says, Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man mature in Christ. For this I toil, striving with all the energy. And where does it come from? This amazing apostle, with his indefatigable journeys, night and day, uh, through shipwreck and hardship of every kind. Uh, working with his hands, laboring, traveling, uh, up and down the length and breadth of the entire uh, Roman Empire, ceaseless in his endeavors. Where does he get the energy? Would you like to know? He says, 
striving with all the energy which he mightily inspires within me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that's why I say, if we Christians would begin to understand what it is that God has made available to us, we'd never be the same again. We'd never have to be pleading as we are now with people in this church to take on needed enterprises, needed ministries, teaching ministries within the Sunday school and other places and be met with the excuse, oh, I just don't have the strength to do it. I don't have the energy. Or I don't have any motivation to it. You see, here's a source of energy which Paul says is constant and consistent and which flows through him as uh, as it's inspired, created by the Spirit of God indwelling him. And as he saw the task, he moved to meet it with the energy which God gave. That's resurrection power. All right. Look at now in chapter 2. We have the warning against certain false powers, which... Uh, uh, would woo us away from the true power that Christ gives us. And these are as valid and as relevant today as they were when Paul wrote them. There are certain things among men which are regarded as sources of power. If you can get these, you can be a powerful individual. Your personality will be strong and radiant. You will be a leader, a dynamic leader of men. You've seen these advertisements in which this kind of language appears, isn't it? Just send away for this course, $10, and you'll get a course that'll transform you within 15 days into a dynamic leader. You'll never be the same again. And uh, there are many other more subtle approaches to this, offering us power. And it comes largely from the three sources which the apostle outlines here. He says, first of all, in this chapter, he reminds us again of the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And uh, we have all that it takes to live life in him. And in verse 6, he says, as therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him. You've got what it takes. Now live it out. Let it show rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. <laughs> I wonder if any of us have ever read that verse before. Abounding in grumbling is the way it sounds to us, doesn't it? <laughs> Complaining. Oh, no. Abounding in thanksgiving. Now, what robs us of that? Well, first... The idea that knowledge is power, human knowledge. See to it, says the apostle, that no one makes a prey of you. And by the way, that's an interesting word there, makes a prey, is really the word kidnap. See to it that no one kidnaps you. By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. I don't know how many instances of this kind of kidnapping I've seen here as a pastor in this area devoted to the exaltation of human knowledge. 
How many failures of faith I've seen on the part of young people coming up here to study who have been raised in Christian homes but exposed to the wily, subtle uh, uh, teachings of human wisdom. They've lost their faith and turned away from the things of Christ and gone off into, into wild and riotous living oftentimes. Why? Because no one warned them or they did not heed the warnings to avoid being made a prey of by human knowledge. Now this sounds at first as though the gospel is anti-intellectual. And I've had people say to me, how do you dare preach on a verse like that when you are there in near Stanford University where you've got more Nobel Prize winners per square inch than any other place on the face of the earth? <laughs> how could you preach on a verse like this? I don't know any place where this verse needs to be preached on more than here. The Bible is not against knowledge, but it's against knowledge that is not that does not sit under the judgment of God, under the judgment of the word of God. The apostle analyzes what's wrong with human knowledge, the things that are wrong about it. There are many things that are right, and there's much truth in what man has discovered through the centuries. This he and we must readily admit. But what he points out is, its source is suspect, first, because it comes from tradition. And tradition is the gradually accumulated body of knowledge built up bit by bit through the centuries and passed along from one generation to another. Consequently, it is made up of great quantities of truth mingled with error with no way of distinguishing between the two. And human knowledge, therefore, that does not sit under the judgment of the word of God is an indistinguishable mixture of truth and error. And those who accept it uncritically are bound to accept as much error as they do truth. And it will lead them, therefore, into mistaken concepts and erroneous and injurious ideas. And this is what we see demonstrated on every side. Second, he says, it's according to the elemental spirits of the universe. What does that mean? Well, he's referring to the dark powers that, as he brings out in other letters, govern the minds of men, darken the intellects of men, and limit our understanding, so that human knowledge is essentially rudimentary. That is, it's elementary. It deals only with the peripheral, with the externals of truth. It never gets to the real heart of things. And that's why you can have a university community like ours, saturated with the highest uh, exponents of, uh, of human knowledge, and yet filled with vileness and corruption and uh, unrest and distress with a high suicide rate and uh, evidences of decay and deterioration on every side. Because it's rudimentary. It doesn't go to the heart of things, like the Word of God does. Now, uh, the two complement each other, as I said this morning. But there must be a, a critical evaluation of the Word subjected to the wisdom of God. And final, the final thing wrong with it is, it's not according to Christ, he says. Therefore, human wisdom lacks the ability to insert the great positives into life that Christ gives. 
It's essentially negative. It doesn't produce the great uh, qualities of love and truth and joy and peace and power that come only from Jesus Christ. All right. He shows us then that the answer to this is the judgment of the cross. The cross has delivered us and cut us off from trust in the and admiration for the for human wisdom as such. And we're brought to the place where we can judge these things and see the moral values of them properly in the light of the word of God. Then in verse uh, 16, he indicates another suspected source of power which leads people astray. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And in that same uh, vein, in verse 20, he goes on. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things which all perish as they are used according to human precepts and doctrine? What is this? Well, it's the, it's the supposed power that comes from a dedicated zeal for God, which manifests itself in keeping days and and special feasts and new moons and regulations and ascetical practices, flogging the body and wearing a hair shirt and uh, laboring long hours out of zeal for a cause. All these things look today like they're, they're sources of power, don't they? And sometimes we can't help but admire the zealousness of individuals who get themselves all wrapped up in a cause like this. But, says the apostle, they're tricking themselves. They do not discover real power. In fact, look at verse 23. These, he says, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in uh, promoting rigor of devotion and self-abasement and severity to the body. There's a kind of false humility that's produced by this. And it... uh, it uh, extracts a grudging admiration of us from us because they're so zealous in this rigorous life. <laughs> but look, they are of no value, he says, in checking the indulgence of the flesh. You see, you can wear a hair shirt and be filled with lust. You can beat your body black and blue and still be guilty all the time of thinking lascivious things. There's no... This is no check to the indulgence of the flesh and therefore no power to lead the kind of life that we must live. And then he mentions still a third source of false power. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. What's he mean here? Hmm. We're hearing a lot about this these days. That if you, if you get in touch with the unseen, invisible spirits, you'll have power. If you contact the dead and uh, uh, get messages from them, you'll have an unseen, invisible source of power. 
which will make you able to live as other people cannot live. And these Colossians were troubled with it, and we're troubled with it today. We're seeing a, a great increase today on every hand of this turning to the occult, to astrology, to uh, the black and devious arts, to magic, to seances. Bishop Pike has just suddenly become uh, Exhibit A in this respect today. What is this? Well, you see, it's, it's a, a satanic substitute for the power of Jesus Christ, the indwelling power of Christ. Now, in chapter 3, the apostle then turns to the true manifestation of this and how to lay hold of the power of Christ. And you get these wonderful words. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Don't let your affections be put on the things of earth. Now, that doesn't mean... Uh, just be, go around constantly thinking about heaven. There's nothing of super piousness about this. He's simply saying, don't let your desires and your attitudes uh, be governed or directed by desires for uh, the manifestations of earthly fame or power. But let it, let your desires be shaped by the word of God and a desire to exhibit love and truth and, and faith and long suffering and patience and the qualities that mark the life of the risen Lord. That's what he's talking about. It isn't going around thinking about heaven all the time. It's going around manifesting heaven in the midst of the situation in which you find yourself. And he gives us the recipe for doing it. First, verse five. Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. God has already sentenced it to death in the cross. Now, when it manifests itself in you, treat it like that, as under the sentence of death from God. And he goes on to list them. Very practical, isn't it? Evil desire and covetousness, immorality, impurity. And then he moves over into our area, doesn't he? Now, put all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Foul talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another. Uh, put off the old practices and so on. Put these away. That's step number one. And step two, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, patience, forbearing one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord forgive, has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. What does he mean by this? That we try to imitate Christ in this respect? Oh, no. You see, this comes after he's told us that Christ already dwells in us. Having him there, he says, now deliberately let these things be manifest in you. Deliberately set yourself to manifest these, counting on his life in you to make them real and not phony, genuine, authentic manifestations of his life. And then he goes, he lists certain specific areas in which these are to be manifest. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Slaves, 
Obey your masters. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. And right down the line, concluding with these practical admonitions, continue steadfastly in prayer, watchful with thanksgiving, praying for me, he says, conducting yourself wisely toward outsiders, letting your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And then the latter section of the letter is simply some uh, personal greetings from men who are with him, which is very interesting because these men are also demonstrations of the power of an indwelling Christ at work. And concludes the letter, as was his custom, by taking the pen in his own hand and writing, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my fetters, grace be with you. Now I want to return, just in closing, to that verse in the first chapter, which is the key to this letter. Verse 11. Read it again. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. That's tremendous, isn't it? You want that, don't you? Christ's power, Christ's life manifest in you. What for? What do you want it for? So you can dazzle everybody? So you can go around performing miracles? Doing startling things that will get your name in the paper? Is that why? Look what Paul wants you to have it for. For all endurance and patience with joy. Underline those words. That's where resurrection power is manifest. You see, that kind of living the world cannot produce. It doesn't know how to take trials with a smile and to endure hardships with faith and patience and joy. It knows nothing of this. It takes an unknown kind of power as far as the world is concerned, the power that is resident only in Jesus Christ, which will transform our hardships and our difficulties into joyful experiences. And these aren't just phony manifestations of joy. They're genuine. We learn things from this. If our heart is right with Christ, if we're putting off the old and putting on the new, we discover that these experiences do indeed become experiences producing joy. Not grumbling and complaining and growling and uh, griping, as is so manifest among us so frequently. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, that in Peninsula Bible Church, there may be a manifestation of endurance with patience and joy. Let's stand together. Thank you, our Father. Again, for this first century book speaking to our 20th century, 20th century lives and uh, showing us again that there is not one thing changed, not one thing in the world is different than the world these early Christians faced. Not one thing is different about our relationship to Jesus Christ than they had. We, too, can live like they lived in joy and gladness and thanksgiving. In the midst of this life, we pray 
that we may discover it by acting upon these uh, admonitions which Paul has given us. In Jesus' name, amen.